So, where you been? <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> I don't think I've traveled recently, except for our uh, season finale and opener, which was down in Austin, Texas for AAR. But you, you travel regularly with your work. Wasn't our season ender like 2015? How long ago was that? It feels like a <laughs> good while. Feels like a while ago. We were trapped in the cave, right? Like the Hardy Boys, and uh, we didn't know if we, we could escape. Well, the smugglers had to, you know, be stopped. Right. So we, we went after it. And you know, the Hardy Boys, I used to read them as a kid, and the weird bit that even as a kid I realized their dad would be out on a case, and then they would have a case, and they'd be separate cases, but the last third of the book would be, surprise, they're on the same case, and their dad would kind of save them. Yeah, if you just add a dog, it's Inspector Gadget. <laughs> It's not even, it's not even close. So true. And you know the the very it's there's some deep irony there, some deep like tension between like the dad out solving a mystery, real important crime, and his kids are about to be murdered <laughs> by smugglers, or something like this. But the kids help him in a way solve the crime, but he they just then do it again. He's not really worried that they basically nearly die by smugglers or drug runners. I do think that would have at some point come up in his performance review. You know, it seems like your son's always figured this out for you. Maybe we should hire them. Yeah. Anytime you start a case, just follow your sons for two days and <laughs> we, we can save 20% off the case. Your opening instincts are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those were season finales of the old Batman show, the 60s Batman, where they would be tied up over a pit of lava with a rope and... I can't believe they used to end a season that way. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Just, like, I mean, the idea of what's going to happen. I mean, it's unseemly to, to do that week to week. You know, I would get frustrated. Like, wait, what? Like, don't like answer the question now. Mm -hmm. There are some shows that still do that a little bit. Like Game of Thrones will have cliffhangers at the end. I get it on some level. You have to keep the interest up. But I get so tired. I think that was all pre-internet age. Now there's every theory and every idiot's opinion gets published. And, well, I think it's this. Jon Snow is alive, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. And whereas before you just go, wow, neat. And your friends would talk about how you were going to tune in in the fall. Yeah, it really has shifted. Although some of this was going on centuries ago. I know with Thomas Hardy, back when they serialized novels, people were really waiting or they'd either be in the magazine form or they'd be in multiple parts and Dickens and others. So there was that serialization of the story, which is having a cliffhanger so people wouldn't in effect want to buy the next volume or read the next element in the, the Strand magazine, uh, Sherlock Holmes, that kind of thing. Um, so it is weird that they have these artificial, in a sense, even within a TV episode today, that at the commercial break, something has to happen. So you'll hang yeah. on. And, yeah. and then with the internet, like you're saying, then you have speculation, which some shows then just play with as part of the show. Uh, I think Walking Dead was that bit of that way. Is is Glenn going to die at that one moment? And he didn't. And I think they were just messing with the fans. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Uh, I noticed this the first time with the show Lost. Yes. Yeah. There's that long gap or something. I wasn't watching Lost, but were you part of the Cambridge crowd watching Lost that, that one year? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember it was you and Simeon and others. And I was just like, you guys are like, you guys are in deep. <laughs> but I just remember hearing Simeon and somebody else discuss what they thought was going on. And it turns out none of you were right because it was just purgatory. 
<laughs> right. The whole... Well, the season finale, yeah, or the last couple of seasons had been purgatory. It was very disappointing, everyone agrees. But up till then, it was it was a lot of fun. The show just kept expanding. Spoiler alert, by the way. Is it is it right to say spoiler alert after you've spoiled? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a, a, a spoiler postlude, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, right. I always say if you haven't seen it by this point, that's your fault. I, I think within six, there's a spoiler alert for six months. And after that, you're just lazy if you haven't seen it yet. Hey, you know what I recently just watched? What's that? The first Batman movie. The very first one with <laughs> Tim Burton. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you want to talk about it? Did you know that Bruce Wayne is Batman? Did you know this? And the musician Prince is in the movie. Did you know that? That's right. I knew he did the music, but the music, he's actually, yeah, 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 I mean. yeah. The music. I think because Jack Nicholson was a big fan of Prince, so he. One of my primal memories is being in middle school and skating at a skate rink to all the Prince Batman music because uh. it was, yeah. It was so, like, weird, yet fun at mm-hmm. the same time. And it had, like, spliced in Jack Nicholson and some other voices from the from the movie. Yeah, that was a hot deal back then. It was Trey Cool. Did they have the suicide drink at your skating rink where they mixed all the sodas together? That was kind of the no. cool thing in middle school. Like, I'll take a suicide, and it was Mountain Dew, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, Mr. Pibb, and like, you're crazy, man. You can't handle it. So we always had a good time with that. That's kind of a dark title for a drink. Yeah. You know? Well, back then, I, yeah. I, right. Well, it was middle school, you know. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> I laugh at these things. So do you have any quirks when you travel? Well, first of all, I got to ask you before I get onto that. Would you, when you went to the skating rink, mm-hmm. were you one of the few that could skate backwards? You know, it, I I think so. I think I got to where my mom wouldn't let me speed skate because she didn't want me to get hurt. But I think I could do everything else, as I recall. You strike me as a guy who could like do the flip around and like to start <laughs> gliding the angles backwards. Hey, baby. Then the slow speed skate got awkward, but I, I could handle it. <laughs> the slow skate. Yeah, I would go play video games during that. Yeah, that was kind of awkward because it was like prom, but worse because you're supposed to ask all of a sudden versus prom. You could kind of. Wait yeah. up and and pick your, pick who yours pick who you, whom you were going to ask. But well, and middle school girls don't single themselves out and sit all by themselves. You have to go into the the den of thieves and ask the, ask right. her in front of her other friends. Right. And take them away <laughs> and hold her sweaty hand. Yes. <laughs> and try not skate. to break any legs as you right. skate into yeah. each other. Oh, that yeah. was strange. The mating rituals of the late eighties. <laughs> Uh-uh. There really aren't any more skating rinks. Um, there was one back in Orlando when we lived there, but we always, my wife and I always wanted to go just to pretend like we were in middle school again. But mm-hmm. I was like, honey, we're going to like, our feet will hurt from the second we get out there. We're going to fall. Like, we're not as cool as we once were. Going to need so. knee surgery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pop something. And, and I, yeah, I didn't want to go to my friends. What happened to your knee? Why are you on crutches? <laughs> well, you know, wicked roller skating <laughs> accident. But slow skating with my wife. <laughs> That's right. I tried to do the backwards slow skate, but, you know, too much. Well, the good thing is with the uh, the, the deductible on our insurance, we the last $1,000 on our two surgeries was, was free, so that's good. There you go. Yeah, so travels. I um, Yeah, I was around off, off and about for a while in January. I was in a few hotels. The... the I've noticed with hotels, the the problem isn't being in a hotel. I mean, I think the first day or two in a hotel is kind of fun. Sure. 
you're like, okay, you know, new bed, different bed. Usually the pillows are nicer. They don't smell like you, um, <laughs> all your, your head sweat. You know, and you're in a new environment, new city, whatever it is. The energy of whatever you're there to do, whether it's a conference or work, I think it's the third through the sixth day that you're in the hotel where you just go a little mental. Mm-hmm. You you start to almost see it territorially as your room, not as a room that you're renting. So so one time I was in Colorado and I stayed for two weeks. I was teaching in the summer, and it was a fun. I mean, when I had to pack up out of there, it was my, it had become my apartment at some by that point. I, I started putting a little tag on the door that said, do not come in. This is my room, like, <laughs> to the to the person. And, yeah, there was stuff under the bed. I mean, it was like an old dorm or something. Wow. Do you have any quirks with the room? Do you, like, my mom is paranoid about germs. She She's convinced hotel rooms are really dirty. So she. Oh, they are. So they she wipes. So she brings wipes and wipes down the doorknob and thing when she gets in the room. And then she will put the remote in the ice bag. And I've heard of other people doing this because the in theory, the remote is never cleaned. It's disgusting. And so you put it in a bag and you press it, you know, that, that kind of. How are you going to read the numbers? Well, it's a clear bag. So it's the ice bag. So you can read it and you can press it, but you've got basically a. a a sheath on it, but then you feel like a goofball with a remote in a bag. I, not, not if you're you're thinking about the germs. I guess. I mean, I don't do it, but it is kind of funny that everyone has different approaches to. Yeah. Do you unpack or do you leave your stuff in the bag? I tend to leave oh, my straight stuff straight in the bag. bag. Yeah. yeah, I leave it in the bag. The chest of drawers is a is a worthless space <laughs> item in most hotels for me. Just give me a bigger TV, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. A remote that actually turns the channels, not uh, bag or no bag, just make it work on the TV. <laughs> so I was in Minneapolis at the beginning of January, which, as you can imagine, was cold. In fact, one of our previous episodes, I was talking about Indianapolis. This was worse. This was minus 10 degrees. So I was in the hotel room a lot. I One of the things I've appreciated about that was there was a restaurant in the hotel. Sometimes they don't have food. Like You have to go out to get something. Mm-hmm. And the hotels might not be convenient. But I also hate room service because you just feel like you're in prison. Yeah. Like, like they, slide, they might as well slide the tray under the door. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah. May I have some mole? That kind of a thing. And, but to be able to get out and go downstairs and, you know, at least see some other people is, I find, a, a luxury that I like. I do like a nice lobby. Uh, back in the college days, uh, it was sort of a waste. I wanted the cheapest room, cheapest hotel kind of thing. But now I find the hotel rooms depressing. So a nice lobby you can sit in, sort of mm-hmm. feel a part of things. It's open. It's well lit. It, it's fountain. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice. for what You feel better versus just going to your room. Like you said, it's kind of a prison room. It's small and dark wind, window. What do they call it? Blackout curtains. I mean, even Blackout, that is yeah. a terrifying idea. Why are you blacking things out? What are you going to do? I know. It's a, it's a murder room at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I've been asleep for three days, uh, you know, just because kind of like birds. You close out the, the light and you go to bed. And That did happen to me once. I, I told my wife, I said, don't call. I said, you know, don't, don't freak out if you call and it's on silent. But I had done something like teach for two weeks straight and I was moving, going to a hotel. I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. One of those like didn't sleep much the night before things. Actually, I think what I was doing is I was teaching a course I had never taught before in a different city. So, as you know, each night when you're doing a course for the first time, you're prepping for the first time. You're like, I don't quite know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Okay, let me rearrange my PowerPoints. And once the course is set, it's better. But 
in this case, I was staying up late each night, like really late, like 2 a.m. late to, to get ready for the next day. And to, I just kept going on adrenaline. So by the time it was go to the hotel on a Friday, I didn't have to be anywhere until Sunday. So I was like, honey, those blackout curtains are going to work tonight. <laughs> and I, I think I woke up for the first time since like college. I woke up at like 2 p.m., utter black, and I felt rested. It was the first time. Ah, uh, joy, time. joy. Yeah, I know what you mean about the, I mean, I've never taught in that situation. It's a very condensed class, you're saying, that over a week you're covering a huge amount of material. But, yeah. But I, I do know that the classroom is exhausting in, in, a, in a strange way. Stanley Hauerwas has talked about that, that it's... Segway bell, ding, ding, ding. I, mentally and physically exhausting, that standing, that, that sort of being that engaged, that just physically you're drained, and then mentally, of course, you're kind of doing gymnastics as the teacher for hour to three hours that it, it is you do kind of feel wiped out yeah there's no zoning out when you're teaching right not, none at all i mean you can't autopilot that's it and that intensity really gets to you and um and i find physically that i i like to stand because i can see people and i feel like also it's kind of a i'm able to command the room but then also i'm getting old and so sometimes i do just sit but you know what i've i've switched to is the big stool all right um with the guitar you know. Yes. Harmonica on the next Hello, dancing. Kids. Uh, we're gonna sing a song. Are you there in the quad? Are you there? No, I. But I sit on the stool because, like you said, I like to be able to see to the back, and it doesn't bother. It wouldn't bother me to sit lower, but I I do sometimes see people in the back craning their neck to see me talking or if I'm pointing at something. Yeah, I think there's a physical engagement that's important. That that if you can walk around, if you can stand, it's just a very natural way to engage a group and and anytime you don't do that you've surrendered something but there are just times also that maybe it's a seminar maybe it's it, it's a three-hour class and, and it's just really difficult to to stand for that long but Penn and Teller magicians others they don't come sit down they, they get on stage they walk they command the room a concert stands yeah uh, in fact oddly you stand in the audience as a sign of engagement Yes, that's right. You're not supposed to sit down unless it's a Broadway musical or something, and then you sit. But a rock concert, everybody's standing, which is, again, totally exhausting. Well, and, you know, when you sit on a stool, it's great because it's, it's like you're the Supreme Court, and you're just a little bit taller. There you go. That tells them that you're better. Than the them. raised dais. I am the judge. <laughs> <laughs> I am above you. <laughs> Apparently, the, actually, I heard, op, I've, I don't know this, this is just off the top of my head, but I've heard it's actually kind of freaky because... When someone goes to argue before the Supreme Court for the first time, they're used to judges that are elevated. But apparently the Supreme Court, they're actually flat. They're down on the ground looking you in the eye. Hmm. And there is none of like, – I don't know if it's some symbolism of this is the highest court in the land so we don't have to act like we're taller than you um, or something. I've heard lawyers talk that when they, they walk – because you don't – there's no pictures in there. There's only those weird artistic sketches, you know what I'm talking about? No, I really haven't. There's no, there's no photography that. in the Supreme Court. There's, there are artists doodling pictures. Oh of what yes, I thought you meant actually in the room. You mean afterwards? You're talking about the reporters. Yeah, gotcha. That's right. Gotcha. But there's, there's no pictures within it. No, no recording of it within, uh, at least in some capacity, like you might see in others. Like you're not going to get the uh, O.J. Simpson trial like broadcast live, right? Vibe from the Supreme Court. But anyway, so lawyers only see pictures, but then they go in to argue and. They're, they're, it's like a, a 
the uh, hiccup I've heard in their minds. So they're like, wait, why are they so low? Oh, gosh, I got to start talking now. And it, it can it can rattle them. Interesting. Yeah, it's a- athletics. I mean, there is that if you can rattle the guy. Uh, you know, oh, the, yeah, you got to stay in the zone. Muhammad Ali messing with you the day before, you know, calling you out, trying to get in your mind, get in your head. Sucker. Yeah, I mean, I remember the, uh, yeah, the rope. I actually watched some Muhammad Ali stuff for a while. The rope-a-dope thing. I use that, I use that analogy a lot. The he was going up against Foreman, and he talked about the rope-a-dope, and um, you know, it was just this. He had this way of yeah mocking you, and you'd get mad and off your game. It's funny because I don't really watch a lot of sports now, so I, I I didn't really watch tons when I was younger. I watched football, but I remember like with Michael Jordan when he was out. I don't know if he, I was you know you were probably high school, middle school. Mm-hmm. I used to watch. I remember I, I was thinking about this the other day. I used to watch basketball because I was watching Michael, the best of the best. Like it was amazing that you could watch somebody that you knew was the best at their field, the best in their game, live. Does that make sense? Like, yes. And then Tom Brady just won like his 90th Super Bowl or something like this. You know, it's like this. It's kind of amazing. Like you know, the guy is the greatest, and yet he's still alive. You didn't. You didn't know it. You didn't wait till ten years after to assess it by numbers. It's an entirely different thing, right? Right. Because there's some people that are their gifts are only recognized in later generations. At the time, they're seen as as out there or crazy, and maybe they were a little crazy. But the Van Gogh, yeah, the Van Gogh problem. Van Gogh yeah. problem, exactly. Um, you know, yeah, they didn't like his paintings. They didn't think much of them. And then later, people say, "Whoa, wait a minute." And maybe it's because they didn't know him. Maybe they need a little distance. Moby Dick was that way, uh, was, was a total bomb when he published it, uh, Herman Melville. Uh, it so, was. So there, there are the, gener- yes, there are the, the geniuses that are not recognized in their time period, and then there are the geniuses that people realize as they're doing their thing, whether it's athletics or some kind of artistry, that they realize, like, this, this is really special, and we're going to miss this guy. It might also have been Van Gogh and that weird no ear thing, like you know, just walking around like, "What's up? Want to see my painting?" Like, <laughs> well, I'd actually rather see your ear. No, I don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mailed that off to some hot girl. You know, even weirder is if he tried to make his own fake ear, but it was really bad. It was like like a weird pig's ear on a string, and he just kind of tied it, but it, it hung off in a weird way, and it or just, just was a sharpie. Worse. <laughs> he just takes a sharpie and draws an ear right there. Well, what's weird is he actually paints himself with the ear bandage, like that's like like weird self. That's like Kardashian level selfie at that point. Like, yeah, it really is. Uh, missing my ear. There's some theories that he had uh, an illness that was causing it, like severe pain. By the way, I- I've read that recently. You find that convincing? No, I think it was nuts, or something happened. Yeah, something mm-hmm. something squirrely. You know, you, went, you know, he was a seminarian. He went to seminary. I didn't know that. Before that, yeah. He went to seminary and then to like what we would, what we would today call a Bible college. But he was always an outcast. He, they, back, uh, I've been told, back then you kind of had to be in the upper up, like the, the elite, to attend seminary. You had to know a lot of Latin. You had to be well educated because it was seen as, you know, the last step, the last polish of your education. And he was more or less, you know, we might say today blue collar at least in terms of his education level. And he just didn't quite fit in. That's why if you look at his first paintings, his, his dad was a pastor. If you look at his first paintings, it was of a Bible, it was of his dad's church, hmm. and it was of uh, church ladies coming out of a church during a funeral. You, you get this sort of sense that he's exercising some, some pain about being thrown out of seminary and not... 
He he actually tried to map to, to pastor amongst I think it was coal miners. Uh, he anyway, it's just very unique. He tried to do the the theology thing and it it didn't work out. So he became a painter. Do we know why it didn't work out? I think that inner that's inner social problems. He 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 had to have the degree first of all. I don't quite know. There's a Harvard professor that has a book out about him and some others who left their Protestant faith and became essentially atheists by the end of their life. And in his case, it was something about the tortured preacher's kid who doesn't quite fit in. So something like that. That's always an interesting thing for historians, that in order to have a convincing argument or to be interesting, you have to speculate. But as a historian, mm. you don't want to admit that you're speculating because you're supposed to be rooted in sources and analysis. And yet, if all you have are sources and analysis, then it's not going to go anywhere. So there's always a right. bit, I think, of sleight of hand, especially in comparison to theology, which is always, in a sense, constructive and going too far. But at least it's kind of very open about that. But even reading the Hamilton biography by Chernow, there were times when he would say, you know, we know that Hamilton must have been thinking this at this moment, or we're confident. And I think, no, you're not. You're no, guessing. Yeah. I mean, you're totally stepping out. And it's all right to speculate, but don't pretend as if it's historically accurate. Unless you have a, a diary entry of that moment, you don't know. So That's right. No, that's, that is the historian sleight of hand. You're right. Everyone does it. You have to. Where you, you just add those little, and certainly he must have been very happy about this. You're like, well, actually all we have is like a very indirect comment. So yeah. And that's usually where people get caught out, like overly speculative mm -hmm. is they get on these flight. Like they, they t usually the worst in history is you take a model. So I'll put it this way. It, each generation of historian has these different fads they go through and they'll, they'll get involved in these models. And one of them relatively recently before I was doing my PhD was uh, something called the Monarchical Republic, which is a big, needlessly long set of words that just means people that are under a king that are hoping for democracy. They're looking ahead to a, a checks and balance system. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to look, you're always trying to look for these precursors, these forerunners that are talking about limited, limiting the king's power, which of course in the modern world sounds very nice. And it, this one historian set up this grid. He actually has like a, one paragraph where he says, here's what uh, this looks like. And he mentions six things. The problem was when I did my thesis, those six things had become not just a theory as to where we might maybe possibly see a forerunner to some of the stuff. It was like an ism. It had become a faith that was there from all time. And so I remember one time I was, I was reading a book by an historian who took the model and actually was reading a book that was part of my thesis, a, an old book, that argued that you must always obey the king. And he says, he goes to, this, this book goes so far as to say, not only must you always obey the king, but if you rebel or ever try to check the king's power, then you will go to hell. I mean, it's like one of those, you know, 16th century, drop the mic, like, nope, you're going to hell if you, if you fight back. That is the ultimate card to play, which is, oh, by yeah. the way, hell. So. Yeah. Oh, by the way... Satan. And um, yeah, so long story short, this historian taking this faddish model reads a book that it could not have been more clearly against his theory and yet somehow manages to make this book all about the coming of Republican democracy. 
and you're just like, what has like it, it jumped the shark at that point in my head. I was like, this is it. We're now saying that counter evidence is itself evidence for my point. And what I noticed is that whole theory has gone away. No one does it anymore. In fact, the historical model on all this stuff is pretty dead. Wow. And that's one thing you don't realize until you're in academics is there are fads. So I think your your oh, yeah. average person in the street, if they think about what happens in academics, they would think it's ivory tower, it's theorizing, it's finding the truth, it's finding, you know, or, or describing things. And all that's kind of true, but there are also definite interests and in fads. One of the fun things at American Academy of Religion is just to look through the program book or look through the book stalls and look for the patterns like, oh man, everybody's yeah. writing on the book of Acts this year or everybody's interested in, you know, disability topic is a huge issue in biblical studies right now of thinking about disability in the Bible. So there are definite interests that draw people in for, for whatever reason. And it's partly historical and partly uh, cultural and things that, that, we're more aware of disability right now, for example, and, and how do we think yeah. about disability in, in terms of the past and in terms of theology. For scholarship, you, you are getting caught up in movements that reflect time periods and, like you said, that question assumptions. And so you do get kind of an assumption about this is how things are until, like how you put it, they jump the shark. And that's always a great thesis is to bring yeah. things back to the the original documents or to call someone out for jumping the shark and everyone goes, oh, yeah, I, I guess we did jump the shark. Sorry. A case in point is N.T. Wright in New Testament, Bible as a whole. So my memory is this, that prior to N.T. Wright in the late 90s, early 2000s, really starting to make waves, it was really dogmatics and historical theology that were at the top of their game. I mean, guys like Alison McGrath were very famous. All of his books were selling like hotcakes. In the historical world, that was the high watermark of the Thomas Cranmer book with McCulloch and others. They just there were just a lot of these guys. David Ford was, I think, uh, I forget what did he when did he take over at Cambridge as the as the chair? He was the Regis professor. If, but how far back was that when it was he appointed? Mid nineties, I would guess. But yeah, mid nineties, like the 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 high watermark. John Webster, all these guys were so big, and then N. T. Wright comes along in in New Testament and does. A little bit of a of a pull the rug out move, where he says, "Look, all these categories and systematic things are imposed on scripture," and he does this kind of rereading of the context, and more or less, this just kind of flips some some of the script with systematics. And he like very coyly will not talk about systematic categories whenever possible. So now, if you look at the the world, it's just like New Testament heavy. It's to, it's to the extreme. Hmm. Like the last 15 years has been so much Bible and New Testament. And the they've done a lot of this N.T. Wright thing where they just say, look, everyone wants to impose really strong debates about law and justification. But Paul's world is very Jewish, very ancient, and he's not thinking in systematic categories. And just to your point, in the last two years, there have been a couple of books that have come out saying, all right, New Testament guys, we get it. You know, we've we've backed off a little bit from the overly systematic category stuff, but now you're just saying that there is no systematics, and there's like a resurgence on the back end of historical and the systematic category folks that are saying, nope, actually this is very interesting again. Like Zodervan's yeah. publishing a, a, a lengthy multi-volume 
systematic commentary on scripture, like a, a dogmatic commentary on scripture. Oh, well, that's good news for me. I hadn't heard it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it may go nowhere, but yeah, you know, yeah probably but, yeah. not. Uh, well, I mean, that's an old TikTok, and they were doing that in the, the 19th century and really with the enlightenment of, of critiquing a lot of theology as being Greek and trying to get back to the original uh, Hebrew and early Christian notions that didn't speak of the Trinity because those are Greek concepts that were imposed. So that's an old way of criticizing yeah. things you don't like, and Christianity is saying, well, that's too speculative, too philosophical. And there's an element of truth in that, that you do call theologians for getting way too outside what's either reasonable or uh, rational. Of course, yeah. that depends on the time period, what's convincing. But yeah, that's an old uh, trick of sort of going back to the sources. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. the humanist movement and the Renaissance yeah. going back to the sources, but then kind of engaging in a, in a scholasticism and then going back and that tick tock. So the real challenge for us is to predict the pattern and then make money. So as we were there, <laughs> sort of, we're ready. Yeah. Prime the pump. Well, and this is the thing is, you know, when I was thinking about a doctorate, thinking about a, a field, it's too alluring to think that what you need to do is just find something that makes you a unique snowflake. <laughs> I love that unique stuff. Because that is the old thing. Every snowflake is unique, like you. Every, yeah, woo! All the way down to the molecular structure. What you can do is get convinced that the, the, the main topics, the main subject, at least the main loci, like New Testament, church history, or historical theology, whatever, that these are boring and, and that they're done, that there's nothing left to do in them. And so what you start doing is looking around for something that has never been done, and you could actually obscurantize yourself to be unemployed. Right. You know, there's so many hybrid theology and this, or, you know, basically you end up with these hybrid degree programs that don't actually prepare you to teach and get a job, because you might do a degree in theology and the arts, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Like, you might actually be in a program for theology and the arts, but let me put it that way. But there's not a department of theology in the arts at most schools and most, you know, most seminaries. So what you have is they're looking for someone to teach New Testament, religion, world religions, and they might not be used to the category of theology in the arts or something like this. And they, there's, a, there's a challenge. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but I was always looking for that obscure eureka kind of thesis mm -hmm. or topic. And, I, and eventually I realized... Wait, everyone keeps doing the same main topic. Like, why do I need to so make myself stand out that I end up being? Uh, I don't. Ha I don't have a category at that point. The American dream. I'm. I'm so. I'm, I stand out so much. No one can even tell who I am. Yeah, and that is a problem um, of lining up kind of your goals and and what you're interested in, but thinking about it in terms of future. And and one path is kind of the crazy William Blake or artist that or Van Gogh. You know, look at my pig ear. Uh, no thanks. So. <laughs> You're kind of on a certain path. And of course, with acad academics, that's we're not usually quite that out there. We're not we are creating and thinking and, and in a sense, artistic and, and thinking and writing and those sorts of things. But we're not on the fringes like a William Blake or a, a, a Van Gogh or someone. So one path would be kind of really pushing the envelope and absolutely the American dream. Do what you want to do. I just got to be me. I'm a snowflake and that kind of thing. Uh, and then the other side is trying to think about how to make that into a career and how to meet kind of 
the eternal law of supply and demand and where's the demand and right right now demand is it when you look at the job listings there's lots of islam lots of buddhism asia and yep. and so you have to think about that and in, in terms of what can i do with this when i'm done because if your goal is to teach you're going to have to like you yeah. said find the places and religion and arts and aesthetics there are a few places and there are the occasional areas or schools or positions but but you're right there's certainly not it's not standard like new testament is yeah new testament's always going to be taught somewhere because in the end a dean or a search committee it needs to hire someone to to teach courses Mm -hmm. that's how they that's how the school stays alive so they're not hiring you based on your research per se unless it's a research university and those jobs are very sought after but you're being hired to teach, so if you're if you don't look like you can teach the main courses they need, they're not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And you're right though about the the East and Islam and things. I do sometimes wonder though because there's there was a move like this that happened before with sociology. So in the 1970s, it was all about sociology. It was like that's the hot topic. Everyone's studying it. One of my old professors was pointing this out to me. Places I think he mentioned Emory and others like them. Like at one point, the sociology department was triple the size of other other faculties, and they were all tenured. And then, like by the mid '80s, sociology was like wah wah, like no one really cared anymore. Interesting. And they had all these professors, and they couldn't get rid of them because they had tenure. You know, I, I do wonder sometimes. It's like okay, yes, Islam is a very important topic, and understanding it and and getting its global patterns and things, because all we know is a certain subset of it. But yeah, at the other end, you're like. At some point, don't chase the fad. At some point, anticipate it. Like it's both and. Mm-hmm. I think it's what we're both say, what we're saying. Yeah, it is both and. And and right. And recognizing where things are headed. And it, it is weird to think that there is a movement to hire in a certain field. But the truth is, sociology's only been around 130 years. And and that blew my mind yeah. when I learned that some years back. That what seems like dominant fields like psychology, sociology, economics. That, that that's kind of. Those are the new kids on the block, and, and they're yeah, hanging what's up, tough. Rookie? They're rookies. <laughs> what's up, rookie? Yeah, what's up? Yeah. Exactly. So whereas theology in general, in a, in a university setting, it's kind of looked as a fringe and an oddity. It, it is kind of the, I mean, it's going back to, the I guess, the rise of the university. So. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for us. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's right. <laughs> I'll be playing the back nine today. Yeah. So hold my clubs. Theology is the grumpy old men department. These young whippersnappers, <laughs> they're here. I wonder if the sociology fad was partly the hope that sort of a scientific optimism that they. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember having a marriage and the family class in college and it was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But let's study these trends sociologically and then we can make marriages and families better. And, and here we are today. And yeah, it's so much better. You know. <laughs> Shut up, honey. No, <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like the. Yeah, I think I think fads. Uh, I think you're. I think that might be. You might be onto something. I think fads are driven by this optimism that finally we'll get to fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. You know, with N.T. Wright, it was finally we're going to get back beyond some of the stagnation of certain debates and get to a point of real clarity on some things. Or with sociology, finally we'll have healthy family units and societies and neighborhoods. Psychology was the. Finally, we'll be able to plumb the depths of the human psyche and have answers beyond, you know, just she crazy. Right. <laughs> when somebody has schizophrenia, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, back to your your point about seeing people in their kind of developing genius that's recognized. You, you've been doing some of that with some of your film watching, haven't you? I have. I've been on, on a Daniel Day-Lewis kick. What is it about him that attracts you? It was indirect. So you know about method acting. Right, that you're in, you get in character. Is you get it? in character and you stay in character even when the camera's off. So... You know, if you have worked on an accent, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is British. And if he's worked on a, you know, an old Yankee accent of some kind, he stays in that character the whole time. So when he did My Left Foot, apparently, you know, he had the people cart him around in a wheelchair. And you know, they had to lift him up over cables and things. And it was kind of annoying for them because <laughs> they're like, get up, you idiot. Like, but he's the actor, so they didn't want to screw with him. But I think it was it was partly that because it, method acting is usually maligned as a as a style because it's just overly done it's overly serious but then there was like a, a crack in the armor where i someone said yeah i i spoke when i learned the accent i it, you have to actually posture your mouth differently to get some of these accents out and they said they didn't do method acting but they kept saying speaking that accent for the entirety of the three-month shoot even offset because they would lose it I was like, oh, that's very interesting. Maybe that's part of the, the backdrop. So the, the quintessential method actor is Daniel Day-Lewis. And then the fact that he's won three Oscars is the only person to win three best lead actor huh. roles. Uh -huh. He's the Michael Jordan, not to dovetail it too much, but he's the Michael Jordan right now of, of acting. And he's still not that old. And so I went back and watched There Will Be Blood. Oh, drink your milkshake! <laughs> that whole thing. I'm an oil man. And all that, I mean, he's just, he's just so interesting in that, that movie. I didn't watch My Left Foot, but I watched him there. I, then I got Lincoln. Of course, everyone loves him in Lincoln. And I think watching those back-to-back, -back, I was like, my goodness, this guy's good. Such a believable Texan from the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And the next one, he is almost Abe Lincoln personified. So just that, just that reality, I was just really digging into it. Have you used that in any of your teaching? Do you become Aquinas? You know, I try to, yeah. That, just, that's why you ate all those ribs and... Because he was a big guy, weight. wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, a dumb ox. <laughs> so who else, what, what else would be a method for theologians? So Aquinas, you get into his kind of, I love me some Aristotle. I love it. I oh, love it. I'm going to put everything in a Q&A format. <laughs> no pros here. Why is he a redneck? I have no idea. You know, actually, He's Italian. You would think he would say, oh, yeah, I like Aquinas. See, that's, I think, a gag of mine that whenever I do someone in a voice, I always make it kind of a, a rednecky sounding voice uh, just as a gag because that, that is kind of the funny bit that you're doing a German, yeah. but he ends up sounding like he's from <laughs> rural North Carolina. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a bit of a gag because I know I can't really do a German accent, but I do like doing voices. German is probably the only accent I can almost get. People have asked me to do a British accent after three years of living there. I'm like, I can't. Yeah. Like, I know some of it. I could probably tell you more about it than I can actually mimic it, but I'm horrible at it. Yeah. It always comes out like Cockney slash Irish slash Australian, which is uh, like an insult to all three countries. <laughs> yeah, I do the Australian thing too. I think it, the, the, of course, Crocodile Dundee and then the, the, the crikey guy that used to do the, the animal shows. I forget his name. Oh, yeah, name. the guy that got killed. Yeah, yeah. yeah but he'd be crikey. So, yeah, I think my yeah. British accent does have a bit. I feel like he poured it on, though, I as think the so. Australian thing. I think Crocodile Dundee, yeah, they're stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, that that's what entertainment does. How would you channel Carl Bart, you think? What's the method acting for that? I just, I keep seeing these pictures of Carl Bart where he's, he smokes so much that his, like, mouth was black. At the end of his life. Did you ever, ever see that picture? No. 
Like he's just got like black lips. Like this is just tar build up on his lips. Oh. I would just mimic him like starting in a very German sound and then just start coughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies, <laughs> you know, it's just over and over and over again. <laughs> a friend of mine says never. His grandfather used to say this comment that never hire a man that smokes a, a tobacco pipe because he'll spend half his time packing it and half his time smoking it, and so they never do yeah. anything. So yeah. <laughs> right. So what do you think about this? And an hour later. Uh, Carl well, Bart's kind of puffing, mm, you know. Yeah. No wonder he was smart. He took him, he got to spend an hour answering the question. Though I, I had a, a professor back in seminary. He's just passed away like a month ago. He actually studied with Bart. He knew him at least a little bit. And he spent like a semester there, a year or something like that as a postdoc. And he was actually went to his home and did some of the, did some work with him. And what's funny is he brought them to class. We thought it was he thought it was totally lying, but he brought them to class. He had old Polaroids of him and Pannenberg and Moltmann. Hmm. They were all little kids, so to speak, after the war, and they were just part of like a study group of theologians. He eventually went on to be a theology professor at Princeton. Who is it? Charles McKenzie, Doctor McKenzie. Okay. He wasn't famous for his work. He eventually became president of Grove City College, so he was known. He was one of the the, the main fighters to keep financial aid as part of college, Christian colleges. Hmm. There was an effort, apparently, in the 70s to throw it out because they're Christian. So anyway, he's he, he just he, he was like the guy who was around all the famous people but didn't write, like, the, the big systematics himself. But anyway, he, he said, we kind of asked him, like, how did Bart work? Like, what was this? He said his wife had this uh, profound way of kind of letting him not worry about certain things. So like food and like it was a bit classic, like she, food was on the table. He didn't have to help on that. And But she said it was a bit, he said it was a bit like Luther, where the students were always coming over after or around dinner to have a beer and smoke in his study with him and talk theology. Oh, wow. And so he said it was just kind of sun up to sundown. He was either talking about it or writing about it or reading it. And it was just like a nonstop. You know, he didn't stop and play World of Warcraft or something at the end of the day or go garden. He, he was just like always doing it. Wow. But but at a, but at a very slow pace. So he, he wasn't very frantic, Dr. McKenzie said. But he was very th like never ending workload at it. So, so very immersive. Yeah. With it, and it probably shows some of his breadth that he's got students asking questions about covenant theology, and he's like, "Oh, I sh and he's writing it down, like, oh, I should, yeah, I should put that in CD four point two or something." Uh, maybe I should come up with a better numbering system. <laughs> no, four point two sounds good. <laughs> They're all different sizes. Shut up. Shut up. Is there a five point three? No, <laughs> idiot. No, I will not. <laughs> Don't you get it? The worst numbering system ever. <laughs> it really ever. is. How can you have a... Yeah. It's, if it's a different volume, it's a different volume. It can't be a subset of a different... You know. We have the technology to make it one big volume, Bart. Come right. on. No, it's separate. Or why isn't 4.2 just volume 5? Why is it part of a prior volume? Like, Once you hit 800 pages, dude, you don't get to count it as part of the book. You just got to start yeah. over. Or even like the subset, like, explanation parts of the book. It's like... <laughs> Those are longer than the first part. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Were you drinking, Bart, when you wrote this? Yes. <laughs> All the time. The the Shakespearean style is that act, scene, and then the line. But strangely, the act and the scene are in Roman numerals, and then you put the line numbers in Arabic. And just and I even read Chicago Manual style recommends abandoning that. It's like, why? 
just only because we think it looks cooler and it's supposed to be fancier. Yeah. But we, we really, there's no argument for Roman numerals anymore because they're horrible. The Romans gave us a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, there are roads in London, the, 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 the highway system in lots of, much of the southern part of England is still based off of the Roman roads. Wow. There are aqueducts that are still standing. They, they gave us all kinds of amazing things. Their numeral system is the stupidest <laughs> thing they ever invented. <laughs> hey, guys, there's a concept of nothing. No, there's not. Uh, no, there's no zero. There is no zero. And uh, just randomly, we're going to flip two of the numbers for no reason. <laughs> Why? Shut up. <laughs> I'm going to subtract these two numbers. Good luck. Good luck. Tell me what the answer is tomorrow. And then eventually, we w- they won't even be in order of because they had you know an alphabet like this is the same as ours but like then it's not like they went a1 a2 it's like x let's throw a v in there or a u um which is what probably it was it's like they will flip it and there's no spacing so the number just goes on and because you see the movie the movies will often still have roman numerals for the copyright year or something oh yeah and you're just like what because M C X what alright, I'm gone. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. Just I'll I'll look it up on the internet. That was somebody's grandma who came up with the system, like, and it was horrible and that it just got instilled. And then he became emperor and made everyone do it. <laughs> yes. You know that actually happened once. Uh in it's what's the in Spain, the Spanish that's spoken up in the northeast. Um is it Catalan? Yeah. Catalan. It's like there there's a there's like a a, a, a softening of the th- Sound? There's a lisp sound. Uh huh. Yeah, and it comes from a king. There was a king who actually had a lisp, and it became fashionable to speak that way. You know, I have read and heard that, but I've also read that's an urban legend and not true. Don't tell me it's an urban uh, legend. No, but no, I don't know. I haven't really looked into it, but I have heard that's kind of one of those. I've heard things. that's what it was. You're right, though. I know nothing about the period, so it's it's. Well, uh, this gets back to the fad thing that sometimes things get picked up and everyone says it and no one's really looked into it. And it ends up that it's it's something that was just a, a canard kind of. Maybe our viewers on Facebook can yell at us if that's a complete fad. Maybe they can Google this for us. And yeah. Determine if that's a fad. I thought the intern was doing that where our theology cast intern. Do we have one yet? Yeah, but he's two and he's taking a nap right now. <laughs> Uh, if he wets the bed, then it it is an urban legend. If he's dry, then it's yeah. So we'll just it's like Groundhog Day at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. So like us on Facebook and uh, iTunes comments are always great. And good to start season two, right? Season two picked up for another season. If you have any ideas, suggestions, possible interns that would not only work for free but actually pay their way, that would be great. We will not mention you by name, but we will call you the intern on the air. Maybe there'll be a movie about it in 20 years.